to continue looking at the topic of Christ in the Old Testament. So as we've been looking at this, we saw last time I suggested that there's really two main ways in which you can see Christ in the Old Testament. One of the ways that we see Christ in the Old Testament is through the promises that God made. So God makes promises again and again in the Old Testament that it's going to be a coming saviour. So when we see God making a promise to Abraham that through his seed, through his descendants, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed, well then we see ultimately that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that comes as promised. He is the seed through whom all the nations of the earth get blessed. But the other way in which we can see Christ in the Old Testament is not, not, not just through promises, but through pictures or what's sometimes referred to as types in the Old Testament. And these are kind of like shadows that show in outline form what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be like. Whether that's through an event or through a person, it's a shadow of what the Lord Jesus is going to be like. So, for example, when we see the Passover lamb being killed and its blood put on the doorposts, and God saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, so that no judgment falls on those who are covered by the blood. It's really hard then for us looking back to see how that's that's not um, a, a shadow of Christ, uh, because it, it is a shadow of Christ that it's so clear and vivid for us, just as the houses were sheltered by the blood of the Lamb, so we are sheltered from destruction through the blood of the Lord Jesus. So both of those methods put together, seeing Christ in the promises and in the pictures, means that we've got to read the Old Testament as a thoroughly Christ-centered book, because from beginning to end, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's actually a way that the Lord Jesus told us to read the Bible. Because we saw that on numerous occasions, he told others, he told his disciples that the scriptures were written about him, that they testify about him. And so he explained to them on various occasions how they should read the Bible in a way that sees him as the ultimate fulfillment of all it pointed to. And he didn't want them to read it as pointing him merely as an intellectual exercise so that they could flick through the Old Testament and say, oh, look, there's Christ, or oh, look, there's Christ. But the reason why he wanted them to read the Old Testament that way was because if we understand the Old Testament rightly, then we'll understand Christ rightly. We'll understand who he is and what it is that he came to do. And if we don't understand the Old Testament rightly, then we're not going to understand who Christ is or what he came to do properly. Now imagine with me for a moment in a kind of strange, unusual scenario. Maybe somebody comes on the evening news and they say, I am the one who has promised, and I have come to fulfil all the promises that have been written about me. What on earth would you make of that? You, I mean, you'd scratch your head and think to yourself, well, what's he talking about? What promises is he talking about? Uh, who wrote these promises? Uh, what are these promises? Uh, and it's not entirely clear because unless you've got some idea of what the promises are, then it's absolutely meaningless to say that you've come to fulfill some promises. Supposing, for example, that person says that they've come to bring the promised salvation. Well, that could mean anything. Salvation from what? Salvation from economic ruin? Salvation from the virus? Salvation from some uh, imminent attack. You see, unless we've got some idea about what the promised salvation actually is, then it's, it's very difficult to understand what on earth that actually means. 
And my point simply is this. If we want to understand the Lord Jesus and what he did uh, and who he is, then you've got to understand the Old Testament because that is the book that lays the foundation for understanding everything that Christ did and said and was. So with that in mind, what I want to do this evening is look at one of the most foundational texts in our Old Testament for understanding the person and work of Christ. And it's found at the very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And of course, the context of this will be very familiar to all of us. Adam and Eve, you see, they've been placed in the Garden of Eden, uh, this garden that is in this land of Eden, and God had given them the commission to tend the garden, look after it, and to rule over the world that God had created for them. And yet, in this beautiful garden that God had placed them in, there, there comes this devious serpent, this devious snake, who's got a mission to turn the man and woman away from their relationship with God. And so the servant, he comes along and he encourages them to see that actually God's been deceiving them, that God is withholding something that's good for them. He, say, he says, look at this tree that you've been forbidden to eat. It's, it's wise. It's, it's good to make you wise. It's good to eat. And he holds it out as something desirable and essentially says that they're missing out on something good that God's been withholding from them. And yet when they eat the fruit of this tree that God told them not to eat of, they discovered that actually God hadn't been deceiving them, it was the serpent who had deceived them and unleashed a flood of destruction in the world, a flood of evil into the world and into their lives. And so then, in the aftermath of this disaster, God comes to them in their trembling and fearful state and God pronounces judgment on them. And so he says uh, in this chapter that their relationships with one another, verse 16 of chapter 3, will be made difficult between husband and wife. That's going to be made difficult. Their relationship to the earth itself, 17 to 19, is going to be made difficult and Adam's going to struggle to produce crops because of the devastation of thistles and thorns. And yet the most interesting thing that I find about this chapter is the, the announcement that's pronounced over the serpent in verses 14 and 15. Because it's interesting because not only is there a word of judgment in 14 and 15, but there's actually a word of hope, there's a message of promise. So let's read from chapter 3 verse 14 and see what it is that God says. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of, the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. For that word offspring, you can read seed toward descendant, so it's between your seed and her seed he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel and that word bruise you can translate it as crush or strike all means roughly the same thing so these are very interesting words that god has spoken to the serpent 
Now, there are some people who read this, this announcement of enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and they say, well, actually, all this is saying that there's going to be enmity between snakes and human beings. And this verse is really just about disorder in the natural world. And surprisingly, it's not just liberal scholars that say such things, it's actually some conservative scholars, and they'll say that actually all this text is talking about is the enmity, the antipathy that exists between snakes and people. You know, you're, you're walking along and, and there's snakes lurking in the grass and the snake bites your heel but you crush its head and this is what this text is talking about. But is all that it's talking about snakes and human beings and their enmity towards one another? Well, I think a careful reading of this passage uh, actually would suggest that there's more going on here than just nasty snakes trying to bite people. For a start, this isn't just any ordinary snake. This snake actually speaks to them uh, and speaks to them deceitfully. And mind you, you've got to remember that this isn't a magical world like Narnia where the animals just go around talking to each other. This was actually very unusual that this snake came along and started speaking to them. And so at the very outset, we're starting to think there's something very strange going on here. This is not normal. Snakes just don't speak. And furthermore, we notice that this snake is really deceptive. He's opposed, from, opposed to God from the very outset. And this is a very, very strange thing because God has created this world. He's created it good. He's pronounced it very good. And in this very good world, this beautiful garden that God has created, where, where there hasn't been sin entering in through Adam and Eve, that suddenly there's this snake coming along trying to deceive them and turn them against God. Where did that come from? And so we're instantly led to believe that there's something more sinister going on here than just a nasty snake. And the other problem with this view that it's just snakes that this passage is talking about is the fact that the rest of the Bible doesn't treat it in that way either. So for example, when we get to Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, which we'll eventually reach in our studies of Romans, Paul, he assures the Roman Christians that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, he's picking up the language of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he's identifying Satan as the serpent. So he, he basically plucks this text and says, it's going to become true for you Roman Christians. The God of peace will crush, and he doesn't say the serpent, he will crush Satan under your feet. Because he's identifying the serpent as Satan. Um, furthermore, when we get to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2, we see the Apostle John, he's got this vision of the dragon, he, he calls, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and identifies him as the one who deceives the nation. You see, he calls him the ancient serpent. And this is because he sees that this one that's been behind all the evil in human history actually entered into the creation at the very beginning in the form of this snake. And so the apostles themselves, as they read the Old Testament, and they see this snake in the opening pages, they see that behind this snake is something much more sinister, that this snake is actually the embodiment of evil. This snake is actually the devil incarnate. And so when we come back to the text here in Genesis chapter 3.15, we see that a curse then is laid on the serpent. And he'll be forced to eat dust for his existence. It's a visible display of humiliation. We don't know what form the snake took before this, 
But all we do know is that the snake suddenly has to live with this humiliating condition where he just eats dust all of his life. But on top of this, there's this prophecy made that there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the offspring or the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, interestingly, the text, it adopts a very singular angle here. It's not speaking collectively about uh, groups of people. It's speaking singularly. It doesn't say, well, they shall bruise your head and you shall bruise their heel. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's talking about individuals. And what I submit to you then is that what this text is talking about is a specific individual that's going to come along and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent tries to strike and bruise the heel of the coming one. And so we see at the very outset of the Bible, amidst these scenes of darkness and despair, where sin has entered into the world and it seems doomed to chaos and destruction, God comes and shines a light and he says, yes, sin has entered into the world through this evil serpent, the devil. But there's going to come a one. I'm telling you from the start, he's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to put an end to all of this wickedness. And so Christians have long referred to this text uh, uh, using the Latin word the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, Proto-Evangelium's Latin word it just means the first gospel. And so this is the very first announcement in our Bibles of the good news that there's going to be one who's going to defeat the evil in the world and defeat Satan himself. And so it provides for us the first frame of understanding Jesus Christ and what he came to do. He is the serpent crusher. He is the one who defeats the devil for us. And last time when we were thinking about the fulfilment of promises in the Old Testament, we saw that there is this idea of initial fulfilment as well. That what happens in the Old Testament is not that God suddenly jumps from the promise to the final fulfilment in Jesus Christ, but that actually through the Old Testament what happens is you get these initial fulfilments where God is putting flesh on the bones, so to speak, of the promises that he's actually made. So when uh, God promises that it's going to be a coming king uh, in the line of Abraham, then we get this initially fulfilled in somebody like David, who starts to flesh out for us what this coming king is going to be like. And so many people in the Old Testament were looking at David, they got the idea that actually the coming king is going to be a son of David, and is going to be like David in many ways. And the Lord Jesus has got this conscious awareness in the Gospels that he is the son of David, and that he's echoing the life of David in many different ways. But we don't have time to look at that just now. What we are interested in at this point is how we get this idea of the, the serpent crusher, and this, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that actually gets initial fulfillment in the Old Testament, pointing forward, providing shadows of who the final serpent crusher is going to be. And so what we're going to do is we're going to trace it briefly through the Old Testament. It's not going to be exhausted. I'm just going to jump around a few passages that give us an idea of the direction the Bible is travelling with this idea of the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, and the serpent's head being crushed. And then we'll look at how it's fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus Christ and how he very consciously sees himself as the one who defeats Satan. And then we'll conclude by thinking about how this has relevance to us. How does it affect our lives as Christians to know this about Jesus Christ and what he has done? So, uh, coming back to this idea of how then it gets traced through the Old Testament. 
it's no surprise that it's actually very soon after Genesis 3 that the idea starts to get worked out in more detail. And so we come to chapter 4, and we find in Genesis chapter 4 the, the story that we all know of Eve bearing two sons, Cain and Abel. And we all know the tragic story then of how Abel offered a sacrifice that was pleasing to God, but Cain offered a sacrifice that was displeasing to God for whatever reason. Um, and this angers Cain, and he lashes out at his brother Abel and strikes him down so that he dies and thinks that no one's watching. Um, and the first brothers then become the tragic outworking of the sin that Adam and Eve has released on the world. But how does that then relate to the message of Genesis 3.15? Well, to answer that question, the best thing to do is look at how the, Old, how the New Testament reads the story of Cain and Abel. And it's interesting, actually, because you look at 1 John chapter 3. And in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, John writes... We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was off the evil one and murdered his brother. Interesting. He says that Cain was off the evil one. He was a child of the devil. Or if you want to put it in the language of Genesis 3, he was the seed of the serpent. And so in, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10... John divides the world up into two classes of people. There's the children of God, and there's the children of the devil. There's the seed of God, and there's the seed of the serpent. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he divides the world up into these two categories, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of promise. And so when we bring those ideas back to Genesis chapter 4, what we're actually seeing in the story of Cain and Abel is the story being outworked of the two different seeds. The seed of the serpent still exists in the form of the wicked Cain, who is murderous and deceitful like the devil. And Abel, who is righteous and pleases God, and is the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent then, Cain strikes at the seed of the woman, bruises him, crushes him, and he dies. And yet, even when his blood strikes the ground, his blood, says God, speaks from the ground and calls for judgment. Um, calls for judgment upon Cain, and so God doesn't let Cain get away with it. And Cain has judgment pronounced upon him. So what we're seeing is this idea, um, sadly in the narrative, that there's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And sadly in this narrative, it's actually the seed of the serpents that, that actually conquers the, the seed of the woman. And we don't see the triumph being worked out. But um, the Bible does continue on. Uh, and develops this theme of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and promises that there will be a seed of the woman who will come, who will conquer. Now, the first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses, uh, and you can more or less treat them as a single book, they're single units in the Bible anyway. 
And when you skip on across to Numbers and chapter 24, we're going to find uh, another outworking of this Genesis 3.15 text. Numbers 24. In this account, what's been happening is that the Israelites have been travelling through the wilderness. Uh, they're going to the Promised Land. And at this point in the story, they're going through the plains of Moab. Now, the people of Moab, the Moabites, aren't too happy about this vast tribe of people moving through their land. And so Balak, the king of Moab, decides that he's going to get uh, a prophet for hire to come along and curse the people of God. And so there's this chap called Balaam. Um, he, he seems to have some awareness of the true God. He certainly has dealings with the true God, but he's more or less a prophet for hire. You, you pay him money and he'll, he'll do things for you. He'll make things happen. And so Balak, he hires Balaam to come along and curse the Israelites. God doesn't let him do that. Uh, God forces Balaam to only say what God lets him say. And so Balaam comes along and Balak gets him to try and curse God's people. But again and again, Balaam ends up blessing God's people. And so when we come to chapter 24 and verse 15 of Numbers, we read these words, speaking of Balaam. And Balaam, he took up his discourse and said, This is the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not nigh. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Interesting words, aren't they? Um, because after saying there's this star that's going to come out of Jacob, and this scepter symbolizing a king that's going to come out of Israel in the, in the distant future, says Balaam. He says that this is going to be the one who is going to crush the forehead of Moab. He's going to bruise the forehead of Moab. Moab, of course, was this nation that was trying to curse God's people, trying to do away with them. They wanted them wiped off the face of the earth. And in those actions, they demonstrated that they were embodying the, the very attitude of the devil himself. That they just wanted to murder and destroy that's why then, when we read that the coming king will crush the forehead of Moab, we understand it saying that the coming king is going to be the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. The coming king is going to put an end to all of God's enemies. Now that idea doesn't get dropped in the Old Testament, it continues on and we start to get it outworked in the life of David. It's not a full fulfilment, of course, because remember we're saying these things get worked out partially in the Old Testament. But it starts to flesh out in the life of David exactly what this serpent-crushing king is going to be like. And you remember the classic story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17? Well, often it gets read as a kind of moralistic tale of how little people can do great things if they trust in God. That, that lesson is true. There's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But in the context of what the, what the story is telling, the narrative is telling in, in the books of Samuel and Kings, the main thrust of the narrative is that the, the triumph of David over Goliath is a picture of the coming conqueror. It's a fulfilment, an initial fulfilment of God's 
promise that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And the language, of course, it's not identical to the language of Genesis 3.15, but you've got to be careful when you're tracing things through the Bible. You don't just look for a specific set of words. You trace the concepts, the ideas, how to get worked out through the Bible. And when you look at the, the similarities between what's said in Genesis 3.15, what happens in the story of David and Goliath, you can't help but notice the similarities. So you look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 49, and it reads, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. It's very interesting then that what we see here is that this, this faithful seed, this seed of the woman that's been promised through scripture, becomes the one who strikes the head of the enemy of God's people, strikes the head of Goliath, and he falls on his face in the dust, to the ground, like the serpent. And David, he runs over and he stands over his defeated foe and he cuts his head off in triumph. He crushes his head. And in many ways, it's fleshing out the idea then that God will provide a seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's providing a picture of what the coming king is going to do. David knows this. David knows that he's not the final fulfillment of these promises. That's why in the Psalms, he speaks about it. Psalm 110 is the classic one. It's a psalm of David, that's what his title does, which, which means uh, that David is the one who, who pens it, so says the name of Jesus. And he writes in Psalm 110 about the message that the Lord, that is God, says to David's Lord, or David's master. Um, so, so David's talking about God speaking to David's Lord, someone that's greater than David. So Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See the same image again, don't you, that you see in Genesis 3.15. We've got the feet, the footstool, and the enemies underneath the footstool. And the enemies then, according to Psalm 110, are under the feet of David's Lord. Further on in the psalm, then, we see this conquering king, shattering kings in the day of wrath, and executing judgment among the nations. And so what David sees is that there's one coming after him, a greater than he is, the ultimate serpent crusher, who's going to crush all of his enemies and put them under his feet. And yet... For all of these promises of conqueror, it's not going to be painless. Genesis 3.15, it says that, that even as the sea of the woman crushes the head of the serpent, bruises the head of the serpent, it says he will bruise your heel. He will bruise his heel. He will bruise the heel of the coming conqueror. Uh, and so... Where we see that most clearly in, is in passages like Isaiah chapter 53 that are really well known to us. 
but sometimes we don't make the connection to what's being, what's being said already in Genesis 3. So the, the promise, of course, in Genesis 3 is that uh, there will be a bruising of the seed of the woman, and that's what happens here. Genesis, or sorry, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, we read that he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. And again in verse 10, we find the same idea. It was the will of the Lord to bruise or crush him, and he has put him to grief. So what the passage is saying, what Isaiah the prophet is saying here, is that ultimately the Lord is the one behind this bruising of the coming Saviour. And yet this bruising that's done of the coming Saviour is not directly done by the Lord. It's not a direct act of the Lord. Rather, it is evil people, and ultimately the serpent himself, that's bringing about this bruising. And yet it's through the crushing blow of the serpent that seeks to defeat the coming Saviour, that the seed of the woman actually brings victory and defeat and crushes the head of the serpent. And so we read in chapter 53, verse 11, that out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, it's saying that after the anguish that he goes through, after his bruising and crushing, he is going to see the outcome of his suffering, and he's going to be satisfied. And through the knowledge of the suffering which he has experienced, he is going to cause many to be counted righteous. He's going to forgive their sins to count them righteous and give this gift to them. So what we're seeing then is that again and again in the Old Testament we're finding this theme being worked out. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. It's going to bruise the serpent's head even as the serpent bruises his heel. So it's not a a promise that just gets made once, then it gets dropped, and then it doesn't appear again until the New Testament. It's something which works its way through the Old Testament, gets filled out. So when we come to the New Testament, we've got a really good idea of what we're expecting from the coming Saviour. So when Christ comes, he comes as the full and final fulfilment of the promise. He comes as the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He comes as the one who's going to be greater than David. Who's going to conquer, even though he seems so weak and incapable, even though he seems so fragile and foolish, he is going to be the one that's going to conquer the greater than the Philistine. He's going to conquer the devil himself. And he comes as the one who's going to put all of God's enemies under his footstool. And he comes as the one who accomplishes all this through being bruised and crushed on the cross, as Isaiah said. And when we look at the life of the Lord Jesus, we actually see this battle with the enemy on various different fronts. So the enemy comes to him in the wilderness. The devil comes to tempt him in the wilderness. But the Lord rebukes him again and again, and the devil eventually leaves him. He can't defeat the Lord Jesus. But beyond this, what we see is that the Lord Jesus consistently goes about doing good. Healing all, that they're, healing all who are oppressed by the devil. You see him again and again casting out demons. And you think to yourself, what's all this casting out demons business about? It seems a bit strange to us. 
battle with the enemy. He's casting out those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And so the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he's interpreting what he's doing when he's casting out demons. What he's doing, he's, he's binding up the strong man. The strong man is the devil himself. And the Lord Jesus, by casting out demons, he's tying the devil up. He's tying his hands from actually doing anything. And then the Lord Jesus Christ in, in triumph is going about, he's plundering the enemy's house. He's taking people, setting them free from their captivity to Satan and to the devil, and enabling them to live lives of freedom in relationship to God. And even as the Lord Jesus Christ, he treads on the serpent in this way, he gives his disciples similar authority to tread on the serpent. This is what he says in Luke chapter 10. He sends out 72 of his disciples. And, and they return and they're rejoicing. And they're so excited because God has given them this ability to actually cast out demons with a word. And they say, Lord, even the demons, Luke 10, he says, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And in Luke 10 verse 19, he says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents. Where's that coming from? Genesis 3.15. I've given you authority, he says, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And so what he's saying is that the promise of Genesis 3.15 is becoming true in their lives because of their association with him. Because he is crushing the serpent. And ultimately, of course, this defeat of the serpent comes not through mighty acts of apparent victory, but through suffering and defeat. John 12 and 31. It's a poignant passage, but the Lord Jesus Christ is approaching the cross. His soul is troubled. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's the very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And he comes further on in John 12 and 31, and he says, Now, is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You see, what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing through his work on the cross is casting out the usurper, the ruler of this world that tries to hold sway. And he's being cast out through the work of the cross. And he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, that lifting up on the cross, it looks like weakness and defeat to the world. There's a play in words, isn't it? You lift someone up. You, you're either doing it in, in mockery or you're doing it in triumph. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he means both. He's lifted up. I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so on the cross, when the serpent strikes at him, when he is bruised and crushed, the serpent the usurper, the ruler of this world, is cast out and the Lord Jesus is lifted up and all men are drawn to him. And perhaps nowhere is this understanding of the cross made clearer than in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians and chapter 2 and <laughs> verse 15. And Paul writes these words. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in it. Paul's ambiguous. He means both. It's 
through Christ and through the cross. But what he's saying here is that all the evil forces that stood against us, they're all disarmed through the cross. They're defeated at the cross. Uh, the weapons that they could use against us, they don't work anymore. They don't have anything to use against us. You see, these wicked forces, they sought to lead us into sin. And then when they dragged us into sin, then they could be sure that God would condemn us. But what happens when the conqueror takes our guilt upon himself and takes our condemnation away, bears it in his own body on the cross, and there's none left for us? And so what can the evil one do? They've got no weapons left. The rulers and authorities have been stripped of their power. So what we see is Christ has trod on the serpent's head. And yet this is something which is perceived only by faith now. Because we don't see the serpent's work completely finished yet. He's a defeated foe. He is fully and finally defeated. He's been disarmed. Can't harm us anymore. And yet he rages because he knows that his time is short. And so he, he does his level best to do whatever damage he can before the Lord comes and puts an end to him. And so we wait for the final consummation, and Paul longs for it too. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the Lord Jesus, the conquering king, reigns until that day when he puts all his enemies under his feet. And Satan will be no longer able to wreak havoc and destruction in the world. So what we've seen is that this theme, it runs through the Old Testament, it gets filled in, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, um, and ultimately comes to consummation in, in the New Testament when Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire and finally defeated, put on the feet of the Lord Jesus. This understanding of Christ's work as being one of victory over the enemy is something that we sometimes neglect, but it's something which was which was very prevalent in the early church. Uh, they called it the message of Christus Victor, Christ our Victor, Christ our Conqueror. And it's a theme that's well worth thinking about more than we sometimes do, and it has many practical ramifications, and we just want to run through just three of them in the last five minutes. See, one of the things that Satan he, he tries to do is he tries to deceive people. That's what he's done from the very beginning. He's a deceiver. He deceived Adam and Eve, taught them to think that the tree would be good for them, but actually it was going to bring destruction upon them. And still today he works to deceive people. And once he deceived us, we went about living our lives thinking that we were doing what was right. People always do what they think is right. But more often than that, it's because they've been deceived into thinking that what they're doing is good and, and right. And the wonderful thing about what Christ has done is that he has disarmed Satan from his power to deceive us. He can't deceive us in the same way anymore. Nevermore will we be blind to the goodness of God. When we read the Bible, we see God's commands and instructions, and they are a delight to us because we know that God is good and his love endures forever. And for us, Satan can no longer blind us to the heinousness of sin. And we start to hate sin in our lives and see it for what it really is, and we don't like it when it crops up in our lives. And this is because the Lord Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent, and he can no longer deceive us. The other way in which this truth is important is that it means that evil forces can no longer harm us. They can't do that anymore. Ah, but you say, 
Surely we can be harmed by demonic forces, evil forces in this world. Sure, look at Paul, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about a messenger from Satan that was sent to buffet him. How can you say then that Satan can no longer harm us? And so Paul, he talks about this thorn in the flesh that he's been given. But actually, when you look at it, you see that even this messenger from Satan is kept on a very short leash. God is the one who's in ultimate control of it all. And even though it might cause Paul some temporary pain, ultimately God's purpose in it, so he, he says to Paul, is so that he would learn that God's grace is sufficient and that his, he would see his power being made perfect in weakness. And so then we see that these evil forces, they do no ultimate harm to Paul. Even the evil forces are only used for his good at the end of the day. Now perhaps we worry about this a bit less in the UK than other parts of the world. But it's helpful to think in terms of global Christianity and the message that pertains true to, to the world at large and to many aspects of our lives even here. If we believe that Jesus Christ has trodden the head of the serpent and has disarmed the religion authorities and put them to open shame, then we have assurance that they can do us no harm. They can't touch us. They can't touch a hair of our heads without God's permission. Because Christ has conquered. Then finally, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, uh, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we were held in slavery because of our fear of death and because of the one who held the power of death over us. But of course, it's not that Satan has the intrinsic right to the power of death. It's not that he's got the right to put people to death. It's not quite like that. Rather, it's the righteous judgment of God that brings about death. But Satan uses it like a cudgel, doesn't he? He drags people into sin and then he, he says, Look, look at the sinner, he says to God. They deserve your righteous judgment. And so the righteous judgment falls upon the sinner. And so Satan, he, he trips people up, he drags people into sin and then rejoices because of destruction then that falls upon them. And it's in that sense then that the writer of Hebrews says that he's got the power of death. But Hebrews tells us that Christ destroyed him that had the power of death. Not destroyed in the sense of obliterating my existence so that he doesn't exist anymore, but destroyed him in the sense that he's, he's rendered powerless. He's ineffective. He can't do anything anymore. He, he, he can't wield um, eternal death on us anymore. He can't threaten us with that anymore. That's gone. Uh, and even physical death, it doesn't have the sting in its tail anymore. Precisely because the sting of death is gone. Because no longer do we fear death because death is the, the judgment that will usher us into the presence of God to be condemned. But rather death, if it comes to us before the return of Christ, is simply the means by which we are then brought into the presence of the living Christ, into the presence of God, there to await the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And that's why we have no longer fear of death. Uh, we don't dread its finality anymore. And we rejoice instead that Christ is our victor. Christ has conquered over death. And that we're the one that held the power of death. And so then we live um, in the victory that Christ has given us. Victory over the serpent and his enslavement. But we do still wait. We 
still be it for the day when all of his enemies will be put under his feet. And that's why at the end of Romans chapter uh, 16 and verse 20, Paul, he assures the Roman Christians that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The promise of Genesis 3.15, see it's travelled all the way through the Old Testament, travelled through Christ and his work, uh, his life, his death on the cross, right to us. So that we can claim that promise and say that Satan will soon be crushed under our feet, not because of anything that we have done, but because Christ in all of his goodness and grace has made us more than conquerors because he loves us. And because he is the great victor, we can have the assurance that Satan will be crushed under our feet and all of God's enemies will finally come to an end. Let's give thanks to God. Gracious mighty God, we thank you that we can trace this wonderful theme through scripture and see from even our first sin, you were conspiring to bless us. You were devising means whereby you were banished, be not expelled from you, and in your great grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered us who through fear of death were all, were all our lifetime subject to bondage. You have set us free. You have given us the assurance that even now, not a single ruler or authority can lay anything against us. They can't lay a charge against us. They can't touch a hair on our heads. We are held secure by the Lord Jesus Christ, our great conqueror. And so we long for the day when all of it will come to fruition and all of your people will gather in your presence with the Lord Jesus Christ, our great serpent crusher, the greater than David, and together we will praise him and give thanks to him for all eternity, for his love in rescuing us from the power of our great enemy. We thank you, Father, and praise you 